Well, if you have a Bible there in front of you, our sermon text today is Mark chapter 2. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark. We just started recently. We're in Mark chapter 2, a short passage, verses 18 to 22. And if you're able to, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word today. Mark 2, 18 to 22. Give ear to the reading of God's holy word this morning. It says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst, will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's, let's ask God's blessing upon his word to us here today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you that, uh, that uh, we know that your word even itself tells us that, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from you, from the mouth of our God. We ask that you would give us grace, work in us by your spirit, that we might uh, have our eyes open to see great things from your word. Help us to see Christ lifted up here in this passage and look to him afresh. In his name we pray. Amen. Um, well, this, this passage that we're looking at today uh, deals with a subject that I'm going to guess for a lot of us seems pretty foreign. It seems like a strange uh, subject uh, to us. Even those of us who have maybe been raised in the church and have read the Bible for years, um, we don't really deal with fasting much in our day. It's not a common topic. Um, you certainly don't have a, uh, you don't see a lot of uh, books written on the subject from a Christian perspective. Or, um, you know, we, we might diet. You know, a lot of us go on, on diets for health reasons or to lose weight. You know, we might, uh, you, the word fast, the only time I've ever heard the word used normally is if you have a doctor's appointment. You know, your doctor or the nurse, whoever's scheduling it, will say, hey, don't forget to fast before you come in, which I always forget, and then they get mad at me. But, you know, if you're going to have blood work done or if you're going to have some kind of surgery, they don't want you to eat, right, before, before the surgery for 8 hours or 12 hours or whatever it is. But, but how often do any of us actually, truly, in a biblical sense, practice fasting? How many have ever actually done it for any, any real reason at all? Um, you know, it's odd, odd enough, there, there's no shortage of books and other materials available on health and dieting from a Christian perspective. Now, if you were going to Barnes & Noble or some, even a Christian bookstore, maybe family Christian store, my hunch uh, from experience is you'll find a number of books on that subject. You'll find another, number, number of books on the subject of, of, of health and exercise and dieting, Christian books on health and exercise and dieting. A couple of years ago, you might know that one such book, basically a Christian diet plan, was number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Not number one in the Christian section. It was the number one selling book in the country for, for a time. Now, 
ironically, uh, I don't think that that speaks very well for the spiritual health or state of believers in our country, that such a book as that captured everyone's fancy and attention, rather than books about things such as the glory of Christ, his cross, his resurrection, the gospel. Apparently those things don't sell. Those things don't get our attention. Those things are not the things that we long to read. We long to read about 40 days of purpose, 40 days of, of, of finding better health. Nothing wrong with better health, but to think that that's what the Bible is there to tell us about, I think seems uh, kind of strange. Uh, you know, even a book about fa- the biblical view of fasting and prayer. Not dieting, fasting and prayer. You won't really find much on that subject, I don't, I don't believe. Um, in, in the verses right before the passage we're looking at today, uh, Jesus was criticized. Chapter 2 is one conflict after another. It, this, this conflict building between Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes. And in that passage in verses 13 to 17, what was Jesus criticized for? He was criticized for eating, really hanging out with, tax collectors and sinners. Well, here in our text, these verses right after that, he's criticized for something sort of similar. Uh, We don't know if it's related, but he's criticized for not fasting and for his disciples not fasting along with those of John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees. And how does Jesus respond? How does Jesus respond to that accusation? He doesn't say, which I think sometimes we read read this passage and we, we misread it. And we think, well, he's saying, oh, we don't do that anymore. That's not what he's saying. He doesn't say that fasting is no longer needed. He doesn't say that fasting is an Old Testament thing or that it's no longer proper. What he says is it would be unfitting. It would actually be wrong for his disciples to fast while he was still with them. That's that's the difference. To illustrate the point, as we're going to see, he gives three, what some people call three mini parables one after another in very short succession, dealing with weddings, with sewing, and with wineskins. Some of that is, uh, even even his illustrations sound kind of foreign to us. We don't use wineskins and things, but we'll see what he means by that. The Pharisees, the Pharisees and their disciples who fasted, how did they look at fasting? Why, Why did they fast? We know they fasted. Everybody knew they fasted, but why did they fast? They looked at fasting as basically a self-righteous religious discipline that somehow earned them God's favor. They looked at it as getting points from, from God for doing something. Their fasting was not born out of a genuine mourning over sin and a desire for repentance, but it was actually, in their eyes, it was a means of attaining or even displaying their own righteousness, wasn't it? And because of this, they refused to come to Jesus by faith, but rather opposed him at every turn. And as we're going to see in the early verses of chapter 3, very early on in Mark's gospel, they were already plotting to kill him. Think about that. They took something that was a good thing, you know, fasting. And they were so wrapped up in it as a goal and end in and of itself that they not only refused to come to Christ because of it, because they were establishing their own righteousness, They criticized Christ himself for not doing what they did. They weren't just not following Jesus. They wanted Jesus to follow them. And when he didn't, they hated him so much, they murdered him. They they plotted his murder over it. Well, we're going to look briefly this morning 
at a few things. First, we're going to see what fasting is, the biblical view of fasting, what's its biblical purpose and use. Then we're going to see the Pharisees' view of fasting, why did they do it, and what did they do wrong. And finally, we're going to see Jesus' instruction on fasting, on when it is and when it is not appropriate. So what? first things first, what is fasting? Maybe you've never heard the word before. Maybe you've never... Uh, never read this passage before, never studied it, never heard it preached. Well, fasting basically is the practice of abstaining uh, from food and drink and other non-sinful, normal, everyday comforts of life for a time, for a set time normally. Now, the, the right biblical practice of fasting, um, it, just like a lot of things, like, like coming to church, like praying, like worship, it's never for its own sake. That's the first thing. It's never for its own sake. We don't fast just to fast. We don't pray just to pray, to check the box. We don't come to church on Sunday to worship the Lord just to check the box because it's, it's well, we're supposed to do it, so we do it. Now, that it's, it's okay to do things because you're supposed to do them, but we don't do them just because. We don't do them uh, because there's some inherent value in and of themselves apart from Christ himself. In other words, there's nothing inherently meritorious about the practice. It's, it's not like putting you know, a dollar in the Coke machine and the Coke comes out. You don't do this and God is obliged to give you something. It doesn't make us holier just by the doing or going through the motion of the thing. Fasting does not make one holy. Were the Pharisees holy? Then they fasted, according to, 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 to uh, scholars, they fasted twice a week. At least they said they did, right? They made a show of fasting twice a week. And they were anything but holy. They wanted to kill Jesus. That's not holy. It wasn't sanctifying them in the, in the slightest. We are never commanded to do these things just because. Fasting is not mere asceticism. What's asceticism? It's the denial of self. It's self-denial, self-discipline, self-punishment. Um, God does not delight in us being miserable. That's not why... We are to fast. Fasting and prayer often go together in the scripture. If you've read through your Old and New Testament, you'll notice those two things go hand, very often go hand in hand. In, uh, for example, Acts chapter 13 and, and verses 1 through 3, the church was, was fasting and praying when they were instructed by the Holy Spirit to set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work of ministry that God had called them to. In other words, they weren't sure what to do. It's a big thing, this sending off of someone on this first missionary journey with the gospel into Gentile lands. And what did they do? Well, they fasted and they prayed. They looked at whatever the scripture would tell them. It didn't give them that kind of specific. Hey, send so-and-so here. The Bible doesn't tell you that. But the Holy Spirit was pleased to tell them that when they were fasting and praying. Acts 14.23, it sounds like it's a pattern, doesn't it? In the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas... What did they do? They appointed elders for all these different churches in Lystra and Derby and elsewhere. And it says they appointed those elders, quote, with prayer and fasting. Sounds like they picked up the habit uh, from, from experience in doing that. So prayer and fasting often rightly go together. Fasting is meant to be an aid to prayer. I find prayer hard. Maybe you do too. Rob was talking about you know, thinking of it sometimes as a last resort. I'm guilty of that left and right. I want to hurry up and get through praying so I can get to work. As if prayer isn't uh, an important part of that 
of that work. Well, fasting is often an, an aid to prayer. Now, how is that? It keeps you focused on what you're doing. Maybe the, the rumbling in your stomach reminds you, I'm supposed to be praying today. That, that spending time with the Lord and whatever this concern I have is more important than even something as good and as, as non-sinful as my daily bread, as the food uh, on my, that would be on my plate, so to speak. Well, fasting is also often related in Scripture to repentance for sin. You might know, uh, if you know the story of Jonah, some of you kids probably know the story of Jonah and the whale, right? Uh, well, Jonah, remember what Jonah was sent into Nineveh to say. He was given a message. What was the message that Jonah was given? Was it, hey, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? You know, was, no, it was 40 days from now, God's going to destroy you for your wickedness, right? And remember, John won't do the whole story, but Jonah didn't want to go. Now, you'd think if Jonah hated Assyria, he'd be raring to go. If, 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 you, if you wanted to see you know, Sodom and Gomorrah part two, uh, and, you were, and you were Jonah, and God says, hey, I'm going to destroy them, and I want to send you to let them know. You'd think that Jonah would be like, where's the first ship going you know, to Nineveh? He took the first ship going the other way. And if you, read, if you read the story on your own, it's only four chapters long, you'll know the reason why from what we're reading here. In Jonah chapter 3, verses 6 through 9, uh, Jonah finally, after all the fish and everything, finally goes to Nineveh. He gets a day's journey into this great city, starts to tell him, we've barely been told what he said. He starts to give the Lord's message. And the whole place, the fear of the Lord falls upon the whole place. The king issues a decree. The king believed what he heard. He believed that even though he was the mightiest man in the world, the mightiest nation in the world, that that, that could take out any nation that he pleased at any time, he believed they really were facing destruction at the hands of the Lord of hosts. And so their only hope for mercy and salvation was not in their own might or in their horses or in their chariots or the size of their army, but in seeking the Lord's face in repentance. He knew where he stood before the God of heaven and earth. That as mighty as he was, he was a speck on a speck on a flea's back compared to the mighty God of all creation. Jonah 3, verses 6 through 9, tells us this. He says, the word, the word from, from Jonah, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, saying, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Notice that what he connects it to. He doesn't just say, hey, you know, sometimes God has mercy when you don't eat. Let's go on a diet. You know, God, God likes diets. No, he says, nobody, not even the animals. Don't feed the animals. Nobody eats. Nobody drinks. What's the first thing he did? What did he take off? His robe. His royal robe. Sackcloth. I'm, I'm, I'm not the king right now. I'm, I'm, before God, I'm nothing. I need to repent. He tells them to turn 
Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. He recognized and wanted everyone else to recognize their own wickedness. And the fasting without the the repentance meant nothing. Do, Do all this, and it's a sign of repentance to repent. And what did God do? How did God respond to to the Ninevites' repentance in sackcloth and ashes? Verse 10, it says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God did what? God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, some people might have a problem uh, understanding that or might wonder how do you work that out with God's sovereignty and all of that. Um, it, It doesn't tell you that God changes depending upon us, does it? God's God's decree change? No. In fact, what does Jonah say in chapter 4? Was Jonah happy that they repented? Did Jonah go, wow, I'm the greatest evangelist and, you know, this is great. God used me and all these people got saved? No. Jonah wasn't wasn't happy at all. And why was Jonah unhappy? What did he say? He basically said, I'll I'll, I'll give you the the Cliff Notes version. I knew you were going to do that. I knew you were a compassionate, gracious God who, who, turn, who relents from sending disaster when people repent. In other words, why did God send Jonah in the first place? What did God intend to do? That's what God intended to do. And Jonah knew it. And Jonah didn't, didn't like it one bit. But God, God is a kind and gracious and compassionate God. And often when people repent, even when a nation repents, a wicked nation, I mean, Assyria was as wicked as they came. God judges nations still. And God still shows compassion and mercy upon nations when he grants repentance to them. Joel chapter 2, verses 12 to 14, dealing with, with Israel and, and Judah itself, not with a wicked nation like, like, like Nineveh and Assyria. It says this, Joel 2, 12 to 14, Yet even now declares the Lord, return, repent, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with me- weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts, you know, tear your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him and a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. You hear the same words and phrases, don't you? The same things the king of Nineveh said. The wicked pagan king of Nineveh who knows, but God may relent. And what, is, what, is God's, what does the Lord say to them? Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. What's he saying? Don't let it all be outward. That's what the Pharisees did. Their fasting was outward. Remember, we're going to see that Jesus, you know, he, he rebuked them for going around with long faces and trying to let everybody know because they wanted everybody to know they were fasting. He says, rend your hearts and not your garments. Actually repent. Don't just make it look like you're repenting. Don't just fast for the sake of fasting. Don't just pray and weep and all these things. And so I would say, if, you know, if we want to, to borrow a phrase from politics that's current right now, you know, if we want to see, make America great again, uh, and we want to see the judgment of Almighty God averted from our, our land, the most needful thing at this time is repentance. And that repentance and mourning over sin may need to involve fasting and prayer by God's people. Not saying don't vote, not saying don't get involved in politics, not saying anything like that. Those things, those things are important. Those things have their, 
their place. Uh, but the need of the day, more than politics, is repentance and faith in, in, the, in Christ himself. Well, what's the Pharisees' view of fasting? What's the problem with our passage here? What, how did they view fasting? When Jesus was asked and why his disciples did not fast the way that disciples of John the Baptist did and the way the disciples of the Pharisees did, it's an, there's an implicit criticism there, isn't it? They're not just... It's not just a curiosity. It's not just them saying, hey, Jesus, you know, we noticed that on whatever day, Tuesday and Thursday, you know, these guys fast and you guys are partying with tax collectors. You know, what's, what gives? You know, what's the difference? There's a criticism implied. They're saying, hey, everybody else is doing this. You know, the holy guys are doing this and you're, you guys are, you know, you're kind of not. You know, what, what gives? Why aren't, they, why aren't they doing what the other ones are doing? Well, fasting again for the Pharisees had become a mark of piety of sorts, a mark of, of their own righteousness. It was one of the things that they did on a regular basis that set them apart from everybody else. You know, and and we, we slip into the same kind of thinking, I think, sometimes as well. And that, that setting apart of themselves from the common folks, that was most certainly part of the intent, wasn't it? And it was part of the problem, as Jesus is going to point out multiple times in the Gospels, as well, but the Pharisees' view of fasting, if you think about it, it's as you read through the Gospels, if you read through Mark and the other Gospels, you'll see it's, it's kind of a growing list of things that the Pharisees and scribes were doing. And what were they doing in, in this practice was they were placing their own tradition over Scripture. You know, God commands a lot of things in the, in the Scriptures, doesn't he? Well, they were adding to it. They were saying, hey, you know, God says this, but, you know, we're so holy, we go above and beyond. We, we go above and beyond God's Can you ever go above and beyond God's commandments? No. Do we ever fulfill the ones he's given us? No. You know, we spend the rest of our lives trying, uh, but we, we, we certainly don't fulfill God's commandments perfectly by any stretch. We certainly don't go over and above, above and beyond the call of, of duty. That's what they were attempting or trying to look like they were doing. We go oh, above and beyond God's, God's commandments in Scripture. And not only that, they weren't just regular religious folks. They were the religious leaders of the day. They were the pastors, seminary professors, whatever you want to call them. They were the ones calling the shots. They were the ones in charge. So what they're really trying to do is bind the consciences of the people by their own tradition. Not by the commandments of God. That's a good idea. Binding the conscience, saying that you must, you should. The only place there's authority for that is where? The scriptures. If God's commanded something in his word, then it's a command from God. And if it's not in his word, uh, we shouldn't be acting like it is. We shouldn't make our own ideas, our own traditions, binding on people's consciences. That's never a good idea to add to God's word, to add to his Commandments. According to many commentators, the only fast that's commanded in the Old Testament was related to the Day of Atonement, to Yom Kippur in the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 23, verses 26 to 32, it says this, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now on the tenth day of the seventh month is the Day of Atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. And you shall not do any work on that very day, for it is a day of atonement. To make atonement 
for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from the people. I mean, think about that. This isn't just some, I mean, any command God gives is to be taken with the utmost seriousness, right? God says, by the way, this one, uh, don't mess with this one. You, you, if, if you were in Israel on that day, you did this and you were careful to do it the way he said to do it. What did it mean to be cut off from his people? It's a pretty severe, severe judgment. He says, and whoever does any work on that very day, that person I will destroy from among his people. Like that, that's serious, serious business. You shall not do any work. Sounds like he's trying to give us a hint here. It's a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest. And you shall afflict yourselves on the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening from evening to evening, shall you keep your Sabbath. Now, the affliction spoken of there, a lot of commentators believe that that's a reference to fasting. It might include more than fasting, but that the affliction isn't beating yourself. It's, it was to abstain from normal things, not just work. But to, uh, but to fast. Now, why, why on the Day of Atonement would God require that? Why would he require them, and say it so many times, for them not to work on the Day of Atonement? Think about what the Day of, what the day of Atonement represents. What is the Day of Atonement, the one day of the year in Israel, where the sacrifice for the people's sins was made to make them right with God, to pay for their sins? What does that point forward to? And in our case, points back to the cross. Why, why would God not want you to be working on the day that represented Christ's death on the cross? It, it, it's mixing grace and works. It's a picture of mixing grace with works. You don't do anything. God does everything for our salvation. That's the reason for that strange-sounding command to our ears. And he even says there the affliction part is, is thought of to be a command among other things, to fast. Now, if it's commanded one day in the year, and the Pharisees supposedly did it twice a week, all year, they're kind of adding something, aren't they? They're adding something that the Scripture did not command or require. You might know that Jesus often has some sharp criticism in the Gospels for the Pharisees with regard to their traditions, even fasting, their way of fasting, not fasting per se. There's a parable in Luke 18, verses 9 to 14, called the parable of the rich man and the tax collector. And it says this, Jesus says, it says he, he also told this parable, and who did he tell it to? To some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He's aiming this one, right? There's people that think that they're righteous and they're, they're better than other people. And he says, two men went up to the, into the temple to pray. They go to the right place, right? One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man, the tax collector, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What was the very first thing the Pharisee mentioned that set him apart from other men, even that tax collector? 
I fast twice a week. Think about the posture here. He's, up, he's in front of everybody for one thing. The, the tax collector stands far off and beats his breast, won't even look up. The tax collector is, I thank you that I'm so great. Thank you for making me like me. You know, thank you for making me the way that I am, that I'm so good, that I, I fast, I give tithes. Oh, my gosh. I mean, just, you know, wow. I just, I'm glad you didn't make me like that guy. Uh, total opposite. What does Jesus say? Which one went to his house justified? The one who said, be merciful to me, a sinner. Not, not basing his righteousness on what he does, but on what Christ has done. We sang earlier in the service, not what my hands have done. Right? Not what my hands have, have done. It's, oh, it's a closing hymn, isn't it? Sorry. Uh, we will sing that. Uh, anyway, Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 to 18, another reference to fasting and the Pharisees. Jesus says, when you fast, his disciples, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast... Anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Notice, Jesus does not outlaw, condemn, or do away with fasting there, does he? He doesn't say, the hypocrites fast, don't do that. Don't be a hypocrite, right? Because that's what, that's what hypocrites do, they fast. He actually assumes that they're going to fast. Twice, he says, when, not if, when you fast. He assumes his followers will fast at times, but they aren't to fast in a hypocritical way. The Pharisees' fasting was hypocritical. What, how was it hypocritical? It was for show, wasn't it? It was to be seen. It, it, it almost sounds, it would sound comical if it wasn't so serious. They disfigure their faces. What, did they, what must have they looked like? I mean, they didn't wash. And I guess they didn't shower. Jesus basically says in our day, take a shower, shave, put some deodorant on. And don't, don't stink. Don't walk around all gross. Uh, you know, who knows, wouldn't want to be around a Pharisee, would you? Um, you know, but he, he, it was hypocritical. It was for show. Who did they do it to be seen by? God? God knows when you're fasting. God knows when you're praying in your so-called prayer closet. They did it to be seen by people. They also twisted, as you know from, from the Sermon on the Mount, they twisted prayer that way. They prayed. They loved to stand on the street corners and pray with loud prayers to be seen and heard. And Jesus says they've got their reward already because their reward is all they were looking for was for people to hear them and see them and go, oh, look at the Pharisees. Look at the scribes. You know, so Jesus doesn't tell us not to fast. He tells us not to fast or do anything in a hypocritical fashion in order to be seen and to be looked up to by other people. When we fast, we're to fast with an eye toward an audience of one, with an eye towards the Lord alone. Now, think about, you know, it's easy to look at this and say, well, I don't know anybody who does that. I don't know any, I don't know any Pharisees, right? Maybe you do, but... Uh, I don't know anybody who fasts or disfigures their faces in public. So this whole thing, uh, this passage, it's, it's there. I know it's the Bible, but I'm not sure what I'm supposed to get out of this kind of a thing. But think about how frightening a picture this is that the Pharisees are painting by their actions. They're the religious professionals of the day. They're supposed to be the good guys. They're not the, we look at them and think bad guy, black hat. 
They're supposed to be the good guys. If anybody should have flocked to the Lord in faith and repentance, it should have been them. And yet, look, look and see what they do. The same men who plotted to kill Jesus Christ, they took in their own wickedness and sin and, and, and deadness and sin, good things, godly things, righteous things, prayer, fasting, biblical religion, and did what? Made it something that kept them from Christ. They, they, they took it and made it into self-righteousness, into a means which can't work of becoming righteous in and of themselves in such a way that it didn't just keep them from Christ, from turning to him in faith. It led them to want to kill him and to plot to take his life. That's, that's depravity. That's every man outside of Christ who wants to lean on his own Righteousness. I'm a good person. I'm a good moral person. I'm a Republican. I'm whatever you want to call the thing to be that keeps you from realizing, like that, that tax collector in the parable, keeps you from beating on your breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, through Christ, who died in my place, because I'm not a good person, because I am a sinner. Well, the last thing I want to see in our text is Jesus' instructions on, on fasting and else other things. Uh, he, what does he do there? He gives an answer to his questioners by giving three little mini parables, one after the other, and he tells them these things in order to illustrate how inappropriate it would have been for his disciples to fast while he was still with them. Verses 19 to 22, he says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. So what's he saying? He's not saying that there's no longer a time and a place for fasting. What he is saying is that while he was still with them, his disciples could not and should not fast. And really, the last thing they should have been doing was fasting while he was still with them. The question has the whole thing backwards. Say, why aren't they fasting? His question would be, why in the world would they fast? I'm with them. I'm still with them right now. They're, they're enjoying the presence of the Lord walking with them. Despite all the hardships, there's no way they should have been, been fasting. The first mini parable involves a wedding party. A wedding party. It would have been, uh, you know, we don't have, we don't use words like bridegroom. Those are Bible words. We don't, we don't go to weddings and say, oh, where's the bridegroom? You know, we say the groom, the, the, the bride, that kind of a thing. And their wedding parties and their practices with engagements and weddings and receptions isn't the same as ours. But this, if I can move it into our own context, this would be like someone fasting and mourning in sackcloth during a wedding reception. You ever been to a wedding reception? after a part, It's a party after the wedding. Uh, you ever see somebody fasting? You ever see somebody, you know... Wearing sack, they might not have dressed appropriately for the occasion in our day, but you know, you know, kids, if you go to a birthday party, you ever been to a birthday party and you show up and you've got your presents for the birthday boy or the birthday girl, and you walk in and everybody's, you know, and you, you're like, where's the cake? Oh, we don't do cake. It's a birthday. We're we're gonna play some really sad songs, 
you know, on, on their birthday. And that's, that's what, you, know, you probably wouldn't, wouldn't get invited back a second time or you probably would tear that invitation up and, and throw it away. Nobody fasts at a wedding celebration. Nobody fasts at a birthday party. Nobody goes there to look gloomy. gloomy. It's a party. And if it doesn't seem like a party, there's something wrong. That's what Jesus says his disciples fasting while he was there would have been like. And notice in verse 20 he says, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now, that's not a normal thing. Uh, bridegrooms didn't normally get kidnapped during the middle of the reception. So he's, he's not saying, you know how this happens all the time. He's saying, this particular br- wedding party is going to be interrupted. The bridegroom is going to be taken away from them. And he speaks of future days where they would fast because of that. Now, what he's talking about here, I think, is a veiled reference to the cross. And the real day of atonement that that one in Leviticus pointed forward to. That the bridegroom, the Lamb of God, who would lay down his life for the sins of the world to redeem his elect from every nation, tongue, and tribe, was going to be taken from them and when he was crucified on the cross. On that day, his disciples would fast, but not until then. He also speaks, his second little parable is about sowing. Many of us probably, I don't, I don't sow, I wouldn't know how to sow if my life depended upon it. Um, but he says, basically, you don't take an unshrunk piece of, piece of cloth, a new piece of cloth, and sew it onto an old one that's already shrunk. What happens? If you're like me and you don't know how to do wash very well, you throw it in the washer, you throw it in the dryer, what happens? Well, the old one's already shrunk. It's gone as far down as it's going to go. The new one, it shrinks. So what happens to the tear? You think you fixed it. You make it worse. The hole gets bigger, doesn't it? That's all he's saying. He's saying it, bad things happen when you do things. No, nobody does that. So to ask, why aren't they fasting while you're there, would be like doing that. The last thing is, is wine and wineskins. Now, we don't use wineskins in our day. I don't know anybody who does. Maybe I don't know if the uh, Renaissance Fair people do that still or not, but uh, we use bottles or boxes. Boxes don't uh, have problems with newer old wine. Um, but it's the same idea as that patch of cloth, isn't it? it the new wine would burst the old wineskins. It would try to expand, and the wineskin had already expanded as far as it was going to go. And then what happens to the wine? You ruin the wine and the wineskins. So nobody, nobody likes that. It's... And again, that's also a, a picture of a party kind of thing, too. The joy of, of wine being uh, involved there. Well, in our day, between the first and second comings of the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, we will have cause at times for mourning. We will have time, times for fasting and times for, for prayer, times for repentance. But we look forward to our great hope, the return of Jesus Christ and being with him forever. Then, at that time... There will be no more mourning, no more sin, no more misery, no more need for fasting. And in this meantime, during this present evil age that we live in for now, we are also given something. We're not taking it this morning. I wish we were for the sake of this, uh, this sermon. But, you know, the Lord's Supper. We have the Lord's Supper, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that we're going to look at on Sunday nights for a few weeks here. And what is it? You know, there's a lot of things you can say about the Lord's Supper, but it's a lot like a rehearsal dinner for a wedding, isn't it? It's practice for the party. It doesn't always feel like a party when we're doing it, but it's, it's a reminder that no matter what we go through in this life, and we may have times of mourning and fasting and repentance, that ultimately that's not our end. That's not what we look forward to when we have the Lord's table, the bread, and the wine. It's a constant reminder 
and a foretaste of the joy that we have in Christ, even in the midst of suffering in this life, and the great joy that all believers will one, one day have in Christ, being with him forever in heaven at the great wedding supper of the Lamb that the Bible talks about. May the Lord Jesus Christ himself, may he increase our joy in him and help us look forward to the promise of his coming even more that day when our joy will be made complete. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for even passages like this that we might find curious or hard to understand the application of it to our lives. And we ask that you would forgive us for the ways that we often go through motions and sometimes even do things in a pharisaical way to be seen by others rather than with an audience of one uh, in mind, that we don't do things as often as we should just for your sake alone and not for the way that it makes us look or feel Forgive us if we've ever made your worship, your ordinances, a means of trying to justify ourselves before you or before other people. Give us grace to be a people that's characterized by, by genuineness, by sincerity and truth and faith in your son, that you would help us to be a people that, that even fasts when it's appropriate, but also that we would have the joy of the Lord as our strength at all times, no matter what we go through, that we would not... Uh, be too weighed down, but that we would be, if we do fast and pray in those in those ways, that we would do it in a way that's pleasing in your sight, that you would give us grace to be genuinely repenting, and that we would rend and tear our, our hearts and not our garments over our sins and the sins of our nation. Help us to be people that are characterized by repentance and faith in Christ. And we ask that you would make make us to be salt and light to those around us in that regard. For the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.